0: podcast is from the Kentucky Women Writers' Conference, made possible by the University of Kentucky in Lexington. All right, so um, this is a two-part craft talk. I just want to say that right off the bat, that um, we're going to talk today, we're just going to keep on talking tomorrow, and there's going to be a handout in a little while that you should hang on to for both days. So that said, all right, so my basic thesis here is that fiction, much like jokes, Sex and gymnastics routines is largely judged on how it ends. You can forgive a multitude of sins if things end well. And if they don't end well, that's pretty much all anybody remembers. And just to keep it clean, we could think about a gymnastics routine where the gymnast really sticks the landing. That's the final impression. You have a good feeling about what just happened. The, gym, you know, the gymnast could do everything perfectly but she falls down when she lands. That's what you remember, right? So we don't think about endings enough, though, given how much of an impact they have on us. And if you think about the, the works of fiction that have really affected you, or the movies that you love, for that matter, very often the ending is one of those things that made that such a success for you. If you think about the, the stories, the books, the movies that really fell flat for you, so often it's the ending that was the huge letdown. You were going along, you were into it, and then it was like, oh, that was it. That's all there was. But in fiction workshops, I feel like endings get discussed very little, perhaps because we get started on a story, we run out of time, we don't have time to discuss it. Maybe not everyone even read the whole thing, trying to hide that. (laughs) Um, We don't revise them enough in our own fiction, and perhaps that's because... We open our document, and the document always opens to the first page. It was the first thing you wrote. You've been back over it. You've been back over it. Maybe you changed the ending. You get it, and you send it off. And that opening has been revised 15 times. The ending has been revised maybe once. We also don't tend to think or analyze, think about or analyze the endings that we read nearly enough. And I have, a, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, for some, some readers, don't finish nearly as much as they start. There are a lot of readers out there who put things down. I'm one who tends to stick through to the end. Maybe some of you are like me, but I know a lot of people who tend to toss out a book halfway if it's not doing it for them, which is okay. But that means you've read that many more beginnings than endings. And I also think that when we do finish reading something, if you're like me, I often finish reading at 1 a.m. Because I'm so close to the ending, I'm really into it, and it's like, oh, I'll just stay up and finish it. So I get to the ending. I have a good feeling or a bad feeling. I close the book. I go to sleep. And I don't have a lot of time to think. I don't reread the ending. I, I, I'm on to the next thing. Or maybe you finish the book and then you run off to review it on Goodreads. You know, you're, you're thinking about what's next. You're writing in your, your notebook. You know, you, if you're like me, you keep a list of everything you read. You're like, yeah, I did it. Check mark. Um, so if nothing else, if you take away nothing else from what I'm going to say today and tomorrow the idea that we need to focus on endings as readers and as students um, is the main thing. That by reading and absorbing and actually thinking about endings, your own endings are going to be so much stronger. Um, And I'm going to guide you through some different types of endings, some things that writers are doing with endings. Um, We're going to really get technical with with, um, how things can break down. when endings work, I'm going to hypothesize that they do more than just wrap up the conflict. There's more than just, okay, I'm, we need to get out of this story now. A really good ending is going to add in some way to the world of the story to tell you something that you didn't already know. And a great ending can be, you know, a sucker punch or a revelation, the kind of thing that makes everything that came before it like a path, seem like a path just to get to that point. So with that in mind, I'm going to read you a book that belongs to my three-year-old daughter. And I'm fully aware of how old you are, don't worry. Um, But this is a book that, you know, if you're a parent, you end up reading the same books over and over and over again. And this is a book I'd read about 200 times to my children. And along the way, I started thinking about the structure of it and thinking about the ending of it and thinking there's so much to be learned for adult literary fiction from this children's book. So I'm going to read it to you. It's short. It's by Kevin Henkes, if you know that children's writer, and it's called A Good Day. Now, what I want you to watch for, obviously enjoy the story, it's a lovely story, but I want you to watch for conflict and conflict resolution. So the setup of the conflict, the resolution of the conflict, it will not be hard to spot. And then I want you to notice what happens next. I really want you to think about the ending. So, A Good Day by Kevin Henkes. It was a bad day. Little yellow bird lost his favorite tail feather. Little white dog got her leash all tangled up in the fence. Little orange fox couldn't find his mother. This is where my children used to cry. And little brown squirrel dropped her nut. But then... Little Brown Squirrel found the biggest nut ever. Little Orange Fox turned around and there was his mother. Little White Dog worked herself free and ran in circles through the dandelions. And Little Yellow Bird forgot about his feather and flew higher than he ever had before. And there's more a little girl spotted a perfect yellow feather, picked it up, tucked it behind her ear, and ran to her mother, shouting, Mama, what a good day. And if you notice, and you're sitting far away, it's hard to see, it turns out as she's running, here's the dog, here's the bird, here's the squirrel, here are the foxes. Okay, so fabulous book, right? the kind of book that I'm, I'm glad to read to my children hundreds of times because it's so satisfying. So, okay, we have a classic setup of conflict, 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 conflict. And then in reverse order, we have resolution, 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 resolution. We have a four plot thread structure, right? But then there's this brilliant moment. And I think that, that book would have been kind of boring if it just ended. Uh, everything turned out fine. All the, you know, the fox found his mother. The end. Instead, at the end, we have that, and there's more. And then quite literally, we get a pullback where we can see how all these different things fit together into one universe, one backyard. And we basically get a philosophical worldview presented to us. If any of you studied philosophy, that's technically... Leib would see an optimism. Everything is for the best in this best of all possible worlds, right? Everything happens for a reason. It's not heavy-handed, even for, you know, a children's book. Um, But what he does there, pulling back, giving us something we didn't know simply from the conflict and its resolution, is I think what every great ending aspires to. It doesn't mean that we need to come out with philosophy right at the end. We don't need to get preachy. But that ending, we need something revelatory. We need the news that's always news. We need the heartbreak or the sucker punch or the redemption. Something other. So we're going to talk about um, how to get there. That's a lot of what we're going to talk about. Other ways than just, and there's more. Um, So first, though, what I want to do is talk about where novels and short stories, can, and, and essays for that matter, and poems can fall flat, where the ending does not work. Often the conflicts are resolved, but that's kind of all we get. There's not a lot more. And I think, I think for some reason, maybe part of the reason is some of us are just really scared when we get to the ending. You know, you've you've built this little world, and you're so desperate not to break it, and you're like, okay, I can see the end, and I need to get out of this story somehow that sounds like an ending. And it reminds me of when I was a kid, and I would do piano recitals and I would, I would get to the end of the piece, and I was on the last page, and then I would speed up and play the last five measures as fast as I possibly could, because I was almost done, and I wanted to get out of there, and of course I'd mess up. Um, and I, I, you feel that, I think, in some people's writing. I just I don't know what to do, I just got to get out of this story. Um, and there are so many possibilities of what we could do. So many things we'll talk about today. But let's think about bad endings. And this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for your help. I want you to think about endings of stories, novels, movies, TV series, any narrative arc that ends that have completely disappointed you. And I'd love to get some hands in the audience. What was the problem? Now, I don't, want, I don't need you to tell me what it was and tell me the whole story of why you were disappointed, but just the, the five-word version, the, you know. Yeah, back there. Anything that ends with everything that came Everything, right. <laughs> so it, it 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 or something equally insulting, right? It was a dream or she was hallucinating, or it, it, it add the insult to the reader what you've just paid attention to for so long doesn't matter ha ha the joke's on you, right, yeah. Yeah, often because um, it's overly sentimental, maybe, or because things are wrapped up too neatly. It doesn't feel like an earned happy ending, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the ending is pretty good and then has to be intensified by the main character getting killed out of nowhere. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. When the ending is just redundant. Yeah, yeah, there's too much. There's, there's sort of, you think of sometimes like the, um, right, the ending of, of certain pieces of classical music where like, you think, like, dun-dun, 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 right, it's just like, okay, stop, stop, I get it, you're done. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, which is kind of, oh, and then they walk down the street and it, it nothing really, you didn't get anything out of it, right? Nothing new happens at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Right. Right. I got it. Right. That I got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The. yeah. for instance in this book if he'd said, and so you see, the little girl learned that everything happens for the best, right? <laughs> yes. I think it when they feel they have to fast forward in time and give you them when they're old. Mm. They nothing to do. Yep, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about endings that, that shift in time um, today or probably tomorrow actually. And there there are times when that can be brilliant and effective, but there are times when it's not what we wanted. Yeah, maybe one more back there. Right. right. So it's not, that it, it's not that you have to get exactly what you wished for for the character, but you want some sense of resolution, of completion, right? Yeah. Um, I would say that some of, some of my own things that I'd add to that list, those are all great. I would add, um, if, if a story leaves us with questions in an unhelpful way, you know, there are open endings and we'll talk about those. But there are ones where you're going, but wait, but whatever happened, but why didn't they, what? Right? We hate those. Um, Ones that don't fulfill the story's promises, right? If it was a mystery, the mystery needs to be solved, right? Um, If it was a love story, we need, we don't need for everyone to live happily ever after, but we need the love story to be resolved one way or the other, right? Sometimes um, another thing that bothers me is when it doesn't feel like an ending because it's just so abrupt. Someone mentioned petering out and someone mentioned things going on too long, but there's also that sense of like, oh, that was the end. And especially with a um, a movie, especially if you're listening to audio of a book or reading on a device where you can't tell that you're on the last page and it's like, oh. And you you know you're in the movie theater, the screen goes black and you're like, Are they joking? Is there going to be more? And then you see the credits, and you're like, you still can't believe it? (laughs) Right? That kind of ending? (laughs) Okay. Um, So what we're going to try to get at is the opposite. We're going to try to get at the ending that just slays you, that makes the whole story seem like a road just to get to that ending. Um, And at this point, as I'm talking, I don't want you to look at it quite yet, but we're going to have handouts that... um, Jolie, would this be a good time to do the handouts? Okay. Um, you can just kind of keep them in your lap for now. And it's the kind of handout that I want to give you so you have something to take with you, um, but I don't need for you to be glued to it. So please, please don't feel like that needs to be the case. And it's a huge handout, I have to warn you. It's heavy. Um, so as we do that, though, I'm going to tell you about, you know, I had the experience of reading Good Country People by Flannery O'Connor when I was a teenager. And if any of you have ever read that story... It is a kind of a sucker punch story. You're going along, and you think you know what's happening. And I had it was the first Flannery O'Connor I'd ever read, so I didn't know how mean she was. <laughs> and all I knew about her biographically was like, oh, she was a devout Catholic. And it's, kind of, it's a story that has a lot to do with religion. And it seems like some religious redemption is maybe in store for someone. And I was kind of reading it and going, OK, OK, I know where this is going and i was sitting on my bed um in my childhood bedroom i think it was the summer i was home from college early on and i just felt when i got to that end like i had been punched in the gut my jaw was hanging down and i went back and i reread that ending i reread that story and i felt like you know if it, we don't want every ending to be predictably sort of an o henry ending and I'm not shyamalan ending but you want to do that to the reader every time. The ending needs to be the point. The ending is, needs to be what everything adds up to. So before we get into the how and the why and the what, this is the difficult part, and this is the part I cannot help you with today or tomorrow. You yourself has, you have to know what your story means. You have to know what it has added up to. You don't have to know that when you set out to write, and you don't have to know that the first time you reach the ending page, but by the time you have finished revising your ending, you have to know what it added up to, or we will not know. If you don't know what your story added up to, it probably added up to nothing, in which case, why have you written it? Kevin Henkes in this book certainly knew what his story added up to. And Flannery O'Connor, speaking of her, used to pray to God to tell her what her stories meant. And we know this because she kept, you know, she wrote her prayers out. She was writing to God saying, Please tell me what my stories mean. And I, I, I love that way of thinking. Um, you could think about it like, you know, when you wake up from a dream, you've, we, we have practice with this every day, those of us who remember our dreams. We wake up from a dream, it's a story we've told ourselves. And you're left with this question of, Why did I dream that? Why would I dream about this person I haven't seen in 30 years? Why was this in my grandmother's house? What does it mean that the toaster was on fire? Right? And you slowly start to figure it out. Maybe it's not a neat allegorical dream, but at least it means I'm stressed. It means I'm scared of this thing. Right? So if you don't practice doing that, start, because it's a great daily practice for figuring out what your stories mean. And when you're writing, part of you is always writing from the subconscious, So we do need to stop as we are revising, maybe not as we're writing, but as we're revising and really ask ourselves, why did I write this? What does it mean? What does it add up to? And this can be the hardest part of writing. You don't want the ending that just sounds like an ending so it's okay, so I hope nobody notices and I'm going to leave this right here and run. You want the ending that you've deeply, painfully thought through. And then, as we said, once you figured out the meaning of that ending, you don't want to hit people over the head with it. Um, You want to be subtle in the way that you leave it with people. But you have to know what it was you were trying to say. And I cannot help you with that beyond just telling you that it takes painful deep thinking. If you're getting a headache, you're doing it right. Right? Okay. So you can look at your handout now if you want to, but um, please don't feel like you need to be glued to it. So I have on here... Some rules in quotation marks about endings, and I also have here. You know what they say about rules, right? Right. Okay. Um, so um, these are not hard and fast. So first of all, this is kind of the the in contrast to everything we just talked about. It needs to feel like an ending, especially in the digital age. If more and more people are reading on devices. Um, They have to know this is the ending. It has to sound like an ending. It has to feel like an ending. On the other hand, I'd say that for you as writers, do not read on a Kindle because you won't have a sense of structure. You won't have a sense of, okay, we're 20 pages from the end. Here's what the author's doing now. I'd also say to you, don't read multiple novels at the same time because all those arcs of structure are going to get muddled up. You want to see one at a time as a writer, okay? Um, But it needs to feel like an ending, and we're gonna talk about how to make it feel like an ending. It needs to honor any promises it has made to the reader. If it's a mystery, the mystery needs to be solved, et cetera. It needs to add to the story, not just end it. We need that moment of, and there's more. Um, There's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, but I, I agree with it, so I'll repeat it. An ending needs to be surprising but inevitable. Good Country People, which I was talking about, it is surprising, this person that she, this girl was talking to turns out to be a con man, but then when you look back over the story, it's like, oh, duh, yeah, of course he was. It's that inevitability, it's, it's not a surprise out of nowhere that doesn't fit with the rest of the story. Um, now this one isn't a rule, this is just um, something that makes a lot of endings work that we're going to see a lot as we go through here. It would be lovely If the ending referred back in some way to the beginning, if we feel in some way that we've come full circle, it might be that we're getting back to a place we were at the beginning. It might be a word that's repeated from the beginning. It might be um, a a plot thread that was started at the beginning that we're closing. Um, And uh, the thing, um, notice in this book, as we got back to it, the feather that the girl tucked behind her ear that was the very first thing that happened, was the bird lost his feather. Right? And if that had come later, I think this book would have had a different structure to it, a different feeling to it. it starts with the feather, and it ends with the feather. Everything's wrapped up. Um, I also want to consider what pacing. And we're going to look at a lot of different ways that endings can be paced, but um, there's something that I call the retardando effect. If any of you, do you guys know what retardando is if you've studied music? retardando in, is a musical term, which means that when we get to the ending of a piece, we slow down. And this is how you know it's ending. And not all music does this, and not all stories need to do it either. There is something to be said for the masterfully abrupt ending. But this is just a suggestion for all of you. When an ending doesn't work, when it feels too short, um, Very often it does need to be drawn out, but people make the mistake of going, okay, my ending is too abrupt, so I'm going to add on to it, and then I'm going to add on some more, and then I'm going to show them walking down the street five years later, and then I'm going to say something else, and then I'm going to say something else, and we get these endings that trail off into nowhere. That's usually not the part that needs to be longer. The part that needs to be longer is probably the next to last paragraph or the paragraph before that. There's probably some moment in there that you reached through to get to your final line. Because maybe you thought of that final line ahead of time. You knew where you were going to land. And you raced through it to, to stick your landing, right? And then it feels too fast. So instead of going back, you're adding and adding and adding. Always consider the pacing right before your final line. Because that's often where the meaning is. It's often the moment of reflection, or the moment of wrapping things up, the moment of moving on. Think about going back there and fleshing it out. If nothing else, do think about pacing always with the endings. And that leads us... Oh, actually, no, I want to say a couple more things about that, sorry. Um, to, to draw out an ending without adding more and more stuff, very simply, consider going back in and pressing return and adding paragraph breaks. Um, there are so many times when I was looking at an ending that I thought felt too abrupt, and I finally realized that what I needed to do was not add more words, I didn't need to change the words, I didn't need to change the meaning, I needed to press, literally press return. It's the easiest revision you can make. But to have things literally extend longer on the page. Inches on the page equal weight within a story. They slow us down, literally, but it also signifies importance. This takes up this much space. It must be important. It must be slowing down. and you consider, can consider also whether the rhythm slows at the end and whether it should. It doesn't necessarily always need to. But um, this is from another favorite book of my children from The, um, the Big Red Barn by Mar- Margaret Wise Brown. And every time I read to them, I would notice the last, la- the last words were, while the moon sailed high in the dark night sky. And there's no way you can say those words fast in the dark night sky. If I were a better poet, I could tell you exactly what's going on there with the the meter, but it slows you down, right? Um, Which all leads me to the very last thing on this list. In the last paragraph or on the last page, maybe it's the last chapter if you're thinking about a novel, don't think of it anymore as writing fiction. Think of yourself as a poet. And what I mean by that is not that you need to go in and add flowery language. It's not that you need more metaphors. It's not that you need it to rhyme. It's that you need to think about line breaks, as I just mentioned. And you need to think about meter and rhythm in a very literal way, very specifically. When I I don't do this for my whole novel or my whole story, but when I get to the last paragraph, the last sentences, I'm literally beating out the time, on beating out the rhythm on... The table in Starbucks and everyone's looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, because I, you need it to echo in people's ears. You need that beautiful lyrical quality um, or maybe a harsh quality. Whatever it is you're going for, you need that echo. One of the things that I think television has been doing really well in the past few years in this sort of golden age of television, if any of you are Mad Men fans know this really well, is ending on music and and very... Um, inspired choices of music um, where you know the scene ends, the action ends, and then we get this song starting that might be ironic, it might be devastating, it might be tonally perfect. Um, there was an episode of Mad Men that ends with um, Betty Draper like stuffing her face with ice cream. She's this like kind of unhappy housewife. And then the song You Are 16 going on 17 starts playing. And it's so weird and ironic and haunting. But I think what they're understanding, and what film has always maybe understood, um, is that sound, leaving us with sound, is, for some reason, much more effective than leaving us with a visual, and even than leaving us with dialogue, leaving us with very li- with music, literal music. And I think we think about the word echo. Only sound echoes. We don't really have a word for that for something we've seen, right? Sound is what echoes. And, you, and you want, you, what you want is that when people put down your story, put down your book, those words are echoing in their ears. Uh, it wasn't just a sentence. It was poetry. So spend so much time revising and revising and revising those last words, those last sentences to get to that point. Okay. So that is the, the why and the what that's what we're aiming for, why we're aiming for it. That's the sort of, gosh, you need to spend time on this. You need to do the hard work. You need to do the critical thinking. You need to do the poetic thinking. And what we're going to get at now and what we're going to really go through today and tomorrow is the how, the craft part, and the, the toolkit, the ways that different writers have ended stories, the ways that different stories have ended. And before we get to that, I want to stop here for a minute, though. And see just very quickly if we have any questions about what I've been saying um, about endings or any confusions or rebuttals or arguments or anything like that. No, You're very trusting. Okay. Um, (laughs) I might be full of it. All right. So good. Okay. So we're going to go on and then I'll leave more time at the end for questions and you might have more by then. All right. So what I've tried to do here is I've tried to identify with some effective endings what works. What is the author doing to make this feel like an ending? What does this ending add to the story? Um, What's happening on a craft level? What's happening on the word level? And it's harder to get technical with meaning. So we're really just looking at the words. Um, And we're looking at things like pacing, things like um, humor, things like irony, things like that. these are not hard and fast categories. A great ending will be using any number of these techniques and using them in ways that no one's ever used them before and combining them in weird ways. So it's not that when a writer sits down to write, they go, okay, I'm going to go with ending 12B, dramatic irony, right? Um, it's, it's much more organic than that. It's much more messy than that. And um, these are also just descriptors. You know, they're not... Um, these are not, most of them are not literary terms that you somehow missed in high school. Um, A few of them are kind of literary terms. Most of them, I made these terms up. So these aren't things that you're supposed to go home and you're supposed to have known these already. Um, You're going to come up with your own um, identifiers for them. And I hope that also, I'm sure I've missed a million of these. So I hope that as you read, first of all, Contact me and tell me about what you found that doesn 't fit into any of these categories, but I hope that as you read you 're going to start to notice your own patterns, your own um, find your own terms for what you think an author 's doing, uh, maybe that we haven 't discussed and um, One more note before we get into it sometimes i 'm talking about like the whole last chapter sometimes i 'm talking about the last sentence. Um, It it depends on what we're talking about, so I don't want there to be any confusion there. It could be any number of things that I could be meaning by ending. Um, It's not necessarily just the last sentence of the story. Um, Okay, so I've broken these into five groups. And we have endings that deal with resolution or the lack of resolution. Um, We have endings that deal with meaning. Endings where what I'm really focusing on is sound. Endings where what I'm focusing on is scope, where we're focused visually or auditorially, And endings where the author is playing with time. And of course, most of them are doing many of those things. So um, we're going to start through this handout today and finish going through it tomorrow. So OK, if you want to read along and look along, you can. Um, the very first thing I have here, so endings that deal with resolution or the lack of resolution, um, which they all do in some way. So we're just we're we're pointing out how those can be handled. And just for contrast, the one I start with here is stasis, the lack, the intentional lack of resolution, where the author leaves us and we're still in the middle of the conflict, and the message might be nothing has changed, nothing's ever going to change. The message might be, "haha cliffhanger, got you. <laughs> it could be maybe done obnoxiously. Um, this is um, an example of it, a kind of classic example. This is from um, Chekhov, who you might know as a playwright. He was also a fabulous short story writer. An 1899 story called The Lady with the Pet Dog. And what's going on here is that a man and a woman are having an affair. They're both married to each other people, to, uh, to other people. They've fallen in love. They're in this hotel, and they're talking about what to do next. Um, And I I might skip some of it as I read. They spent a long while taking counsel together, talked of how to avoid the necessity for secrecy, for deception, for living in different towns. How could they be free from this intolerable bondage? How, how, he asked, clutching his head, how? And it seemed as though in a little while the solution would be found, and then a new and splendid life would begin. And it was clear to both of them that they still had a long, long road before them and that the most complicated and difficult part of it was only just beginning. Nothing is resolved here, except maybe you have an opinion in your mind of like, yeah, they're screwed, right? Maybe you've, you've sort of resolved it. Um, but we don't really know what that means even. Okay, does that mean one of them's going to commit suicide? Does that mean they're going to run off and be ruined? Does it, what does it mean? He's leaving us right there. Now, when Chekhov did this in 1899, it was revolutionary. People didn't usually end things like this. Think about the ending. Of, you know, think about Shakespeare's endings. Everything's wrapped up. Think about um, the novels of the 1800s. Everything's wrapped up. So we get to the, kind of the turn of the 20th century, and this is really iconoclastic. Since Chekhov did it. A lot of people have done it, and those of you who teach have probably seen a lot of really bad uses of stasis in student writing, <laughs> um, where you know, there's, people are yelling at each other and then the story just stops and they're staring at each other. Um, so it can, it can sort of be an indicator that you ran out of ideas. Um, it needs to be done really well. Um, and I have a note here, I think, at the bottom. To our modern sensibilities, um, stasis of character, the idea that the world has changed, that maybe this person is never going to learn might work better, and I have a lot of movie and TV references in here as well, if you think of the ending of Seinfeld, of the series of Seinfeld, where they get thrown in jail, and then released from jail, and they're still the same people, and they're still bickering about something, and that's kind of the joke that the world around them has changed, these people are never going to change. right? Okay, so that's for contrast, because usually that's not the way we often want to end a story. Um, but I'm going along that, we have the idea of the open ending versus the closed ending. So all endings are basically either open or closed, but to different degrees. What we mean by a closed ending is that all of our questions are answered, that all the threads are wrapped up. So this book is a great example of a closed ending. Every single conflict was resolved. It would be really unsatisfying if everything was resolved except the fox never found his mother, right? <laughs> like a horrifying book to read to children. Um, so it's <laughs> like, what happened to the fox? Um, so this is a closed ending. An open ending would be one where one or many or all questions are left open, all or the conflicts are left unresolved. So um, the checkoff story, that is an open ending. It's an open ending that ends with kind of stasis, right? Um, Truly open endings are ones that leave basically all readers with the same questions of, you know, yeah, we'll never know what happened to her. We'll never know what's going on. Um, and I think of an ending, it could be broadly open. Um, this is Vladimir Nabokov's short story, Signs and Symbols. And what's happening here is their, their son is in a mental institution. Someone keeps calling the house, but it's not him, it's some girl But they're waiting, they're very worried about their son, and they're going, this guy's reading all these labels of these jams, and then it just says, he had got to Crabapple when the telephone rang again. And that's where it ends. And we're all left with the same questions, which is, is it just the same person calling again, and this is just freaky for no reason? Is it the mental hospital? Did the son die? The fact that you're ending on that kind of suggests something really ominous. We don't really know, um, which is Nabokov messing with us. Nabokov loves to mess with people, right? Um, So it's broadly open. There are any number of possibilities. We all are left with the same questions. We could have an ending that leaves us with maybe two very distinct possibilities. Like either this is going to happen or this. Either she's going to leave her husband or she's going to stay. And it leaves us right there at that moment. We all have one question. Is it this or that? And I think of this as sort of a forked ending, a forked open ending. And in a very silly way here, I put Dr. Seuss from the Butter Battle book, because it's just it's so blatant. Grandpa, I shouted, be careful. Oh, gee, who's going to drop it? Will you or will he? And it's like a little bomb. Be patient, said Grandpa. We'll see. We will see. <laughs> and that's the end of the book, right? They're both standing there holding a bomb on the, each side of the wall. Um, a more serious example of this, some of us tomorrow morning are going to be discussing the Alice Monroe collection, Dear Life. And there's a short story in there called To Reach Japan um, that has a wonderful forked ending. She gets off the train. The man she's been planning to have an affair with is standing right there waiting for her. Her child is beside her. And, you know, it's kind of two possibilities of what's going to happen there. Um, Sometimes, though, there are open endings that they really point us in a certain direction before they leave us. It doesn't tell us how things are resolved. It doesn't tell us what happens next. But pretty much any sensible reader is going, all sensible readers are going to come to the same conclusion of what happened off the page. It's almost like the, you know, if you gave us all 20 blank pages at the end of the book, we'd all pretty much write the same ending. So I think of this as a directed open ending. And um, this is from Colson Whitehead's um, kind of least known novel, but I really like it called Apex Hides the Hurt. There had been a moment a few hours ago as he was lying in bed waiting for the morning to come when he thought he might be cured Rid of that persistent mind-body problem that if he did something, took action, the hex might come off, the badness come undone. He thought, plainly speaking, that he'd lose the limp. Nothing as dramatic as the cripple flinging his crutches into the air before dashing himself to the floor and breakdancing, but still something, anything. As the weeks went on and he settled into his new life, he had to admit that actually his foot hurt more than ever. So, We get the sense, okay, we know where the rest of his life is going. He thought he was over his problems. He's not. He's going to repeat this cycle again. We kind of know. An even better example than that, if you you guys saw the movie Her this year that um, got a lot of Oscar nods, um, don't need to see it to understand what I'm going to say. At the very end, two characters, um, Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams, are left alone on this roof. At the end, they've both had their hearts broken. And they don't say anything to each other, I don't think, really. They're standing together, but it just sort of seems inevitable that they're going to get together romantically. They're going to comfort each other. Nothing's been said in that direction. They're not even looking at each other longingly. You just kind of know it's the only place this really could go. Um, That's what the next ten minutes of the movie would be. So a very directed open ending, but still open to interpretation. Someone could disagree with you right? if you thought that. Um, so you guys understand the difference between the closed and open and the, the different ways authors might be playing with those. And it's a question to ask yourself you know, as you get to the end of what you're writing. How closed do I want it to be? How open do I want it to be? And if it is open, is it going to be completely open? Or do I want to give people enough clues that it's like I've shot the arrow and, and they kind of know where it's going to land? Um, and it's also something as you read you know, that every single ending that you get through, you can start identifying in your mind if you haven't been doing it. Is this closed? Is it open? How closed? How open? Okay, so we could also have an ambiguous ending. And by ambiguous, this is different than an open ending because it doesn't leave us wondering what's going to happen next. It doesn't leave us wondering how these conflicts will be resolved. It leaves us wondering what literally happened on the page. Um, Right? Like, what what just happened? So, we could have emotional ambiguity, where we kind of know what happened, but we don't know how someone feels about it. We're not quite sure what this is going to mean for them. Um, We might wonder if the character is telling the truth. Um, This is a story by um, Caitlin Horrocks called The Sleep. And it's about a town that starts hibernating. I love this story. It's a very sort of surreal story. that This one family starts hibernating in the winter, and then everyone starts hibernating in the winter. And they're really kind of, it's kind of weird and sad, but they're happy about it. And um, reporters are talking to them at the end. I barely remember what our life was like before. I remember being cold. And now? Dee looked baffled, not able to find words sufficient to explain half her life, the happier, more perfect half. The camera turned to Al, but his face was unreadable. Now, Dee said, now I guess we're not. Now we are the people of bounty, the farmers of dust and cold, the harvesters of dreams. After the lumber, after the mines, after the railroad, after the interstate, after the crops, after the cows, after the jobs, we're better neighbors in warm beds than we ever were awake, the suckers of the last century, but not this one. And we're sort of left with this, like, you know, especially, if you have to take my word for it, the sort of um, ambivalence about this that's come beforehand. Um, and maybe for emotional ambiguity, ambivalence would also be another appropriate term. Um, you know, they're, they're happy, they're saying they're happy, but this is weird, and we're not sure that they really are. And we're, we're left with some questions about them. Maybe not questions about what happens next, or about conflict resolution, but we're left with, ooh, I wonder how they really feel. Um, it is very hard, though, to leave us wondering what literally actually happened. So ambiguity of action, where we're going, was he hallucinating, or did he just kill his wife? I'm not sure which just happened. And I guess I'm never gonna know, right? Did, did he leave her or did he stay? I don't. I don't understand what happened there. Um, so, th- there are very few times I've seen this work. Um, we I have a note here about the ending of The Sopranos. The screen goes black. We really, we really don't know what happened there. Did he die? Was he shot? Is it just an abrupt ending? What are we meant to think? What are we meant to assume happened? Um, there's a um, Charlotte Bronte a book called Valette that no one reads because they read Charlotte Bronte's other books, and I love Valette. And one of the reasons ambiguity works here is that she's really just refusing to tell us something, to admit something that we kind of already know. And this whole thing, she's been this lonely person. She's finally found love. Her husband's been away, though, for three years, and he's finally coming to see her, and they can finally be together. And then she says... That storm roared and frenzied for seven days. It did not cease till the Atlantic was strewn with wrecks. It did not lull till the deeps had gorged their full sustenance. Not till the destroying angel of tempest had achieved his perfect work. Here, pause. Pause at once. There is enough said. Trouble no quiet kind heart. Leave sunny imaginations hope. Let it be theirs to conceive the delight of joy born again fresh out of great terror." the rapture of rescue from peril, the wondrous reprieve from dread, the fruition of return. Let them picture union and a happy succeeding life." And then she goes on to tell us things about other people. So it's quite clear to many readers that this means her husband has died in the storm. Um, When the book was released, though, She got many questions about what happens at the what what is it at the end what happened at the end did he make it did he and she refused to answer the questions much to her credit Um, to me I think it's clear that he died but someone might have a different opinion and so this is literal you know ambiguity of action but it serves a purpose it's not just there to mess with the reader it's there because the character herself would in that moment refuse to tell us she's been very withholding throughout the whole novel in fact. Fabulous novel, if you haven't read it. Um, So ambiguity, also very difficult. Okay, so shifting gear a lot here, but we're still thinking about the ways um, an author might deal with resolution, with wrapping things up, as opposed to later when we talk about sound or time, right? So I call this the breakup, obviously a very technical term. Um, This is where the narrative voice moves away from the characters, or maybe the characters walk away from the narrative voice. We're not just resolving the conflict, But we're leaving the story behind, if that makes sense. So the story could be over because we don't know those people anymore. F. Scott Fitzgerald ends Tender is the Night. And this has been his main character. This guy, the character's name is literally Dick Diver, which is the best name ever. Um, And Dick Diver has been main character, often point of view. And then we end with this. His latest note was postmarked from Hornell, New York, which is some distance from Geneva and a very small town. In any case, he is almost certainly in that section of the country in one town or another. He has just walked right off the page, right? Um, Or maybe it's because the narrator has moved on. I love this one. This is Juno Diaz, the story in Nilda. We never spoke again. A couple of years later, I went away to college, and I don't know where the fuck she went. Awesome. Um, or because, and this is a really interesting one, sometimes I've, I've only found a couple of these. The narrator is kicking us out of the story now and we're not allowed to listen anymore. This is Jonathan Leatham in Motherless Brooklyn. I can't, and these people he's mentioning, they've been major characters. I can't feel guilty about every last body. Ullman never met the guy, just like Bailey. They were just guys I never happened to meet. To both of them and to you, I say, put an egg in your shoe and beat it. Make like a tree and leave. Tell your story walking. And we are done. You know, we're talking about it needs to feel like an ending, right? That feels like an ending. Like, okay, sorry, I'm getting out of your book now. (laughs) Right? Um, Kicked out. Um, And I have a couple other examples here. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. She ends with, um, I can't remember if it's Dr. Frankenstein or the monster, but walking away. John Updike's Couples has a really devastating ending like that. um, Now they're just couples like any other. Um, So this one also is kind of addressing finality, addressing closure, the self-conscious ending, which acknowledges that you've been listening to a story, Um, which I think the Jonathan Leatham up above did there too, and it acknowledges that now the story is done. So this is Iris Murdoch and The Philosopher's Pupil. The end of any tale is arbitrarily determined. As I now end this one, somebody may say, but how on earth do you know all these things about all these people? Well, where does one person end and another one begin, another person begin? In my role it is my role in life to listen to stories. I also had the assistance of a certain lady. So we're, you know, we're told it's done. Um, another example here, I have it- Italo Calvino's If on a Winter's Night A Traveler, which ends with the line, and you say, Just a moment, I have almost finished reading If on a winter's night a traveler by Italo Calvino. Which <laughs> um, is a really strange book. Um, Okay, so there are other ways to, to deal with finality, to deal with closure. And one of them is the actions of the characters themselves. So I think of this as an intrinsic ending, a final decisive act or event. Someone does something so final in the story that we know the story has to be over. And I have two quite different examples in here. The first one is Virginia Woolf, Into the Lighthouse. And this woman has been painting this picture, the whole novel. We keep coming back to it. And then, on the last page, she looked at the steps. They were empty. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. So now, putting down a paintbrush is not some dramatic. It's not, that's not a character dying, right? But it's, she has had her vision, Virginia Woolf has had her vision, we have had our vision, and it is done. And we get that message loud and clear. A more um, dramatic example is A Farewell to Arms, Ernest Hemingway. This is one, I I feel like I'm ruining a lot of books here for people who haven't read them, and I'm really sorry. Um, And this is one of those, like, ooh, you you totally, okay. Okay. So Catherine is the love of his life, and this has been their love story. This is why this is so horrible. It seems she had one hemorrhage after another. They couldn't stop it. I went into the room and stayed with Catherine until she died. She was unconscious all the time, and it did not take her very long to die. And there are a few lines of him talking to the doctor. But after I had got them out and shut the door and turned off the light, it wasn't any good. It was like saying goodbye to a statue. After a while, I went out and left the hospital and walked back to the hotel in the rain. Now, and it's, and it's devastating. I mean, this is the, um, the sparsity of the language here is, is part of what's devastating. Um, but one of the reasons I love this example is that when pe- people can make a mistake with this final decisive action by putting it right at the end and not letting it reverberate and trying to sort of shock us right at the end, and then we don't see any of the fallout so in other words, you know, we've seen the rock splash in the pond, but what's much more interesting than the rock splashing in the pond is the ripples. That's really why we're reading. We're reading for that effect. Um, even in this book, you know, she found the feather it behind her ear. I'm like, whoa, but we need that sort of denouement. And then she ran to her mother, and this is how she felt about it. So even Hemingway, who hardly uses any words, <laughs> he, even Hemingway gives us... Frederick Henry walking back to the hotel in the rain. It's the briefest of denouements. It's the briefest of absorbing and, and seeing those ripples. But he does give it to us. It's not just, and then she died. It's she died, and then we kind of see how it's going to be. And another example I have here is the short story A&P by John Updike, where his decisive action is he quits his job. Then we kind of know it's over. Um, and I'm going to butcher this because I don't have it memorized, but he he sort of walks out and realizes what he's done, And it says something, you know, my heart, something about my heart felt heavy. And I felt that this, realized that this was how the rest of my life was going to be. And those are the ripples from that, okay? So we can also have the total game changer ending, the rug ripped out from under you that changes everything. And the reason this feels like an ending is it's so destabilizing from everything that came before that the story has to be done. And it could be that um, a character isn't who we thought they were, right? It could be like in Good Country People, which I was talking about, Flannery O'Connor, this guy turns out to be a con man, and everything that we thought was true is not true. It could be that the narrative itself isn't what we thought it was. Um, We don't want that she woke up and it was all a dream, right? But um, there can be, if you've read Atonement, without giving anything away, there's a a big chunk at the end of that book that we think is one thing, and it turns out to be something else. And when we find that out, we're devastated. We also know that the book needs to be done now, because we understand how destabilized we've been. Um, Without ruining any books, it's not ruining a book. Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint is all sort of first-person ranting for 308 pages, and then it literally says, the punchline, colon. So, said the doctor, now we may, perhaps, to begin. Yes, (laughs) meaning everything that's come before has been, he's been ranting to the psychiatrist. It's a total joke, because like, now we're going to begin. We've changed so abruptly. It has to be over. Um, And of course, that could be done poorly. It could be done really well. Life of Pi is a great example, if you've read that one. The Lottery by Shirley Jackson is a great one. This is not the world we thought we were in. so what I'm going to do is leave you in terms of the handout for right now with those, because that's the end of that section. So basically, you know, the, we're going to get in tomorrow a little bit more to structure. We'll talk about endings that rely on the structure of the whole piece just for a minute. Then we're going to get into endings that directly address meaning um, or that play with meaning in some way, like through irony. We're going to get into the ways different writers might play with sound at the end, lyricism, ending on dialogue, things like that. And finally, and this is my favorite one, we're going to talk about the way endings play with time. So Every ending is dealing with time in some way. We're either in the past or the present or the future of the story. And why and how and then the weird ways those can be mixed up and the effects that those can have. So we're going to keep getting into some of these technical things. But what I want to do now is I think this is a um, we have uh, like four minutes. This is a good time to... Um, talk about um, questions you have about endings, or maybe even just struggles that you have with endings. If we have a couple of questions. Um. Yes? I'm um, very nervous to um, have things wrap up very nicely. I'm very right. Mm-hmm. And so it almost feels wrong when I do and happily. Is there um, anything that you can say about that? Yeah. I, um, <clears throat> I would say, you know, I think for some reason we're very distrustful of happy endings. And someone, you know, when we were asked, talking about endings that you don't like, someone said cheesy, right? Which it's hard to have, you know, you can have a cheesy sad ending, I guess, definitely. But often that makes us think cheesy happy. Um, we're sort of distrustful of it. It seems sometimes too easy. And I think that, um, you know, there are ways to end happily. One of my favorite happy endings is an Alice Munro story called Hateship, Friendship, Courtship, Loveship, Marriage. It's the title story in that collection. Um, and one of the things she does so brilliantly there is it ends happily for some people in it. And others, it's not, it, our point of view character in specific, it's not that she ends unhappily. It's that she's very disquieted by what has happened. She, she learns something about it. And I think the, the key there is cutting it. It's, it's like, you know, you make chocolate chip cookies, you got to put some salt in. It can't all be sweet, right? Um, so thinking about your variety of characters, it might unhappily for some characters, are all the characters affected that way? And if they're not, is there a way to bring out one of those threads of a character who might be having a more bittersweet reaction um, you know, not, uh, happy endings are not happy for everybody. They're really not. Think about a wedding. It's the most joyful event. Someone there is an ex, right? <laughs> someone, there, someone there is sad about something. Um, a happy ending for someone might mean a sad ending for someone else. So thinking about the, the characters and, and have I reached out far enough in that. Um, and um, we might get, as we talk um, tomorrow, about things like time. I'm going to have some other ideas about that, too. Um, But um, it can also, along with that, it can be tricky. You know, an ending might be too closed. Everything might be wrapped up too neatly. And um, one of the things, it's just the tiniest thread. One of the things I love about this book, she runs to the house, calling to her mother, but you never see the mother. There's just that little bit that we can still picture. We're not quite sure. We don't know what it's like, right? There's a little bit. So what, if anything, has been left open? What's unresolved? And maybe just a tiny bit, so that we don't feel like it's been tied in a bow. Yes. Um, I read somewhere that one of the questions that's useful to ask yourself is, "What does the character win by losing? What does the character lose by winning?" I like that a lot. You yeah. I love it. Yeah. Did you guys all hear that? Ask yourself, "What does the character win by losing? And what does the character lose by winning?" Because there's always something, right? Yeah, or or who who else loses when the character wins, and who wins when the character loses? Is kind of what I was saying, but I, I like that very much also, because we're never entirely happy, right? <laughs> and we're never entirely sad, I don't think. Okay, so I need to wrap up so you guys can get to your next sessions. But tomorrow, hopefully, we'll have even more time for questions. You're welcome to look ahead at the handout if you're interested, but we'll get through it all tomorrow. And thank you so much. And I think we have announcements possibly. <laughs> For those of you who weren't here yesterday, what we've been talking about is, uh, we talked first about what makes a good ending, what makes a disappointing ending, and I think that's something you already mostly know, right? I was mostly eliciting responses from you. You already know what makes something work. So the question is, how do we get there? It is a lot easier to know a good ending when you see one than to make a good ending. And we were talking a lot yesterday about closure, about um, open endings versus close endings, about the ways that different authors might resolve or leave things hanging. And even we talked about things like ambiguity. So the different ways authors might approach those. and as I said yesterday, these are not individual distinct categories that an author chooses an ending from. Um, and, and any ending is going to have some relation to being open or closed. Every ending is going to have some relation to time. Every ending is going to have some relation to point of view, right? So um, we are going to talk at this point. First of all, we're going to talk about endings that rely on the structure of the whole piece. Then we're going to get into the different ways authors might use sound and language Um, to wrap things up, and we're going to end up talking about um, the ways that authors approach meaning in their last paragraphs. And finally, the ways that authors play with time in the end. Um, And I won't, as we go through, I have a lot of examples. I don't have time to read all of them all to you, Um, but they're here for you to look at. So, one of the ways that an ending can really feel like an ending is if it's something we've been waiting for, if it's something we've seen coming. Now, we don't want something predictable. We don't want the ending, the, the actual events, to be what we're waiting for, but perhaps we are waiting for a certain point in time. So I think of this as an extrinsic ending, an ending that sort of has to do with the structure of the whole. Um, think about Harry Potter. Every book in Harry Potter takes place over one school year, and you know that as you approach the end of the school year, that's gonna be the end of the book, and you also know that the whole series is gonna be Harry's whole time at Hogwarts, right? When we get to the end of that, it's gonna be done. It helps it to feel done, right, when we get there. Um, So it could be the events at a wedding. It could be the events of the holidays. Um, There was, um, one of my examples here, you know, you have the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral. We're told right up front, once you get through the three weddings and the one funeral, you know how much movie is left, right? (laughs) You know what to expect and you know that when you get to that last wedding it's going to be done. The book, The Ice Storm by Rick Moody, it's all the events that happened in this one ice storm. Election by Tom Parada, it's the events of this election. And that event, that holiday, that election, whatever it is, has its own arc that the story is sort of hanging off of. And that can help a lot. I I tell people often when they're struggling with structure, to see if they can find something like that to hang it on. Um, It also can give you a really nice deadline where um, it, it amps the tension. This thing has to happen by this point because it's what we're all waiting for. Um, think of when Harry met Sally. and I've went, I told you guys yesterday, he's a lot of movie examples, partly because I think some, sometimes we've seen the same movies more than we've read the same books. But think about when Harry met Sally. He's running through the streets trying to kiss her by midnight. Now, nothing's going to happen if he doesn't kiss her by midnight. right? It's not Cinderella, but it that that structure of New Year's Eve and this expectation and the clock striking and the time gives that scene and that movie a sense of urgency that it wouldn't otherwise have. Um, so it's something, you know, when you're looking at something that the structure's kind of floppy and you're not quite sure, always think about, you know, is there a pre-existing arc there that you can hang it on? And then when we get to the end of that event, we, we are expecting the book, the story to end. Um, Another way to to play with the structure of the whole, to make it feel like an ending, is to return to an enveloping structure. So what I mean here is, I've used the example of John Knowles' novel, A Separate Piece. And whether or not you've read it, it starts with a guy goes back and walks around his own boarding boarding school. And then we go into memory for the bulk of the novel. He's remembering this very traumatic thing that happened. And then at the end, he sort of comes out of that He's walking around the boarding school again and thinking about the war. And when we get back to that envelope, we remember where we were. It's come full circle. And we feel like, okay, this is where things are going to end. It feels absolutely appropriate for it to end there. Um, Wuthering Heights is told the same way. It might be a story within a story like that, or it might be... Um, a joke from the beginning that comes up again at the end. It might be a character we haven't seen since the beginning who reappears at the end. So there are many different ways to do that. Um, but thinking structurally about, um, you know, what, what promises were made that we can return to now, um, and that idea of the envelope. Okay, so this, I feel like this one relates to the structure of the whole, um, although it doesn't always have to. But the elegiac ending, the ending that is looking back sort of mournfully on a time in the past, or or a lamentation for what's gone. It might be the world of the novel itself. And and that's why I put it in this section. The, The novel is sort of looking back upon itself. Or it might, as in the case I gave you here actually, be looking back at a time even before the novel started. But that shift to where we're looking back, and we're going to talk about that more when we get to the idea of time, is a huge indicator that things are wrapping up. Um, I have an example here from The Road, and technically he's talking about the world before the novel started. But this is a beautiful elegy, and this is why I put it here. Once there were brook trout in the streams and the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world in its becoming, maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back, not be made right again. In the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. And it's beautiful. And my husband reading this next show Who's like, you could put that on the end of any novel. You could put that on the end of Catcher in the Rye and it would still work, right? Um, But, um, and it doesn't have to be pure poetry like that. There's a novel called 10,000 Saints um, by Eleanor Henderson. It was her debut novel a few years ago, right? Isn't it great? Um, And the ending is, um, they're looking back. It's, It's been about kind of straight edge, hardcore punk rockers in New York in the 70s. And the very last bit is they go back and CBGB, the club, has closed, and they're looking in the windows. And it's the sort of elegy for CBGB, of all things. So it doesn't have to be about nature. It doesn't have to be about someone dead. There are a million things this could be about. But this reflecting back on the world of the novel itself, or even of before that. Okay. Now, I have a tin... I, I love endings like this, the tangential ending. And the reason I've put it in this... Um, section of relating to the structure of the novel as a whole is for contrast. This is the ending that has nothing to do with the rest of the story, nothing to do with the rest of the book, except that it has everything to do with the rest of the story. It's the ending that comes out of nowhere. So Amy Hempel's short story, The Dog of the Marriage, this is an amazing short story, and the story has been about adultery. It has had nothing to do with what comes next. She's been telling this story about adultery and then she goes, did I invent this? It is like sitting in prayers at school when the headmistress says, who dropped lunch bags on the hockey field? And although you went home for lunch, you think I did. I did. Okay, this story has not been about hockey. <laughs> it has not been about lunch. It just zooms in there, and it makes absolute sense with this, with the rest of the story. We were just talking about Dear Life by Alice Munro. There's a short story called Pride. Where it's been about this kind sort of tenuous friendship, and suddenly at the end they look out the window and there are little skunks in the bird fountain, in the bird bath, and they're watching the skunks and they're really happy, and that's where the story ends. And it's not heavy-handedly metaphorical; it's just it's sort of a distraction for these characters, but it means everything. Um, and I, I love that that kind of ending. It's something I'm trying I'm trying to do more of myself, um, the out of left field ending. Okay. Um, So that that actually has more to do with what we were doing yesterday. And and now I think we're going to get into sort of some different ideas of ending, getting closer to the actual words that are used. Um, So endings that... take the time to directly address meaning. And of course, as I said yesterday, all endings need to address meaning, which means you have to do the hard work of knowing what your story is about before you end it or before you revise your ending, right? So, in specific here, I'm talking about the ones that hit the meaning head-on, or that hit a meaning head-on, or that hit philosophy head-on. So, there's, there, it is possible, although it's also possible for this to go very wrong, it is possible to do the blatantly philosophical ending where we have a narrative voice um, coming out and just telling us what the whole damn thing means, right? So um, Annie proves The Shipping News ends on this note, and Jack Buggett, I think, is this guy who's basically just um, woken up at his own funeral or his own wake, and, uh, um, and Coyle, the, the point-of-view character, just have been this tortured person who's sort of somehow found love by the end. And she ends with this, for if Jack Buggett could escape from the pickle jar, if a bird with a broken neck could fly away, what else might be possible? Water may be older than light, diamonds crack in hot goat's blood, mountaintops give off cold fire, forests appear in mid-ocean. It may happen that a crab is caught with the shadow of a hand on its back, that the wind be imprisoned in a bit of knotted string, and it may be that, so- that love sometimes occurs without pain or misery." And that is the message of the book, or at least it's the hard one lesson of this one person. It's an an original message. It's not saying something like um, love is hard, right? It's not something we've heard before. This is a very nuanced message. Love may sometimes occur without pain or misery. And the the language is gorgeous and it's poetic, and that helps a lot so that we're not coming down with sort of an Aesop moral at the end of our story, right? so The Great Gatsby does something similar. Middlemarch does something similar. Um, very closely related to that would be a reflective ending, where it's not the narrative voice necessarily, it's a character, a first person, maybe narrator, maybe it's a dialogue even, reflecting on their own experience. And And maybe it's not the meaning of the whole story, maybe this isn't pure philosophy, but reflecting on that time, reflecting on what has just happened. Um, And I have an example here from Jhumpa Lahiri's final story in Interpreter of Maladies called The Third and Final Continent. Um, And um, he's talking, he's basically, I'm not going to read it all, but he's talking about the astronauts getting to the moon and thinking about how he's come from India to America. while the astronauts' heroes forever spent mere hours on the moon, I have remained in this world for nearly 30 years. And then it ends on, as ordinary as it all appears, there are times when it is beyond my imagination. So you see, that's, that's not someone coming in and philosophizing in the same way that Annie Prugest was. It's this character's thoughts on his own life, um, which are hard won and, and not easily arrived at. So we talked earlier, if you were here for the Ausman Row panel, we talked about the idea of sort of the revelation, the epiphany ending, um, which is getting to be in some ways, in some treatments, a little bit outdated. It tends to be something that people were doing in the 50s and the 60s. um, Very quiet story. Someone would have an epiphany and you'd leave them there and that was kind of the end and nothing had really happened in the story. Um, that might not be what you, quite how you want to do it, but it is possible to have someone really break through at the end, the, a character, the narrator, um, to realize something that they did not know five paragraphs before. And my example here, Megan Mayhew Bergman has a story called Housewifely Arts, and you don't even need to know what it's about. My heart, she said, I can turn it off. For years I'd believed her. But, now, but I know the truth now, what maniacs we are, sick with love, all of us. And it's, it's a revelation that has come about because of what's been learned over the course of the story. Of course, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, as we said before, it's surprising, but it's inevitable, right? We want both of those. Okay, so another way to address meaning right at the end is through irony. So this is kind of a little sneakier where you're telling us what the story means by giving us the opposite. So, you know, and maybe if it would be too heavy-handed to actually come out and say, here's what's going on here, something a little bit more oblique, something a little sarcastic, a little sharper can be going on. Um, and the first, you know, talking about kind of philosophical irony to begin with, this is Annie Prue again. Um, and of course, she, She doesn't just leave it on the irony. She actually kind of lets us in on the joke. But some horrible stuff involving castration has happened in this story. That was all 60 years ago and more. Those hard days are finished. We are in a new millennium, and such desperate things no longer happen. You believe that, you'll believe anything. God, I love that ending, right? (laughs) She just... You know, and and there are times when we don't need to be lit on the joke. I think I might have even missed it if she left that last line off, though. I would have been like, oh, she has an optimistic worldview, okay. (laughs) Um, So I think it was a point where she needed needed to do that to us, right? She needed to laugh at us, or with us, or whatever's going on there. Um, Of course, there could be dramatic irony, meaning we know something the character does not know. And that's also, you know, can be a way of addressing meaning. Steve DeJarnett, the story was in Best American Short Stories, I think in 2009, a story called Rubio Rising, And a man has just been rescued during Hurricane Katrina from this attic where he was. And he's in a helicopter, and now they're putting him down near the superdome. And it ends with, as they set him down on the overpass near the dome with the huddled bunches of others, Rubio knows his suffering is finally over. Help and comfort will surely be coming soon. Right? We know better. <laughs> um, and, and there's just something so chilling about that, something so much more chilling than if he would told us, you know, that it was going to be a long road ahead, uh, you know. Um, and then there's the kind of irony where the character has maybe learned the exact wrong lesson from everything that's come before, which allows us to learn the right lesson. Um, and I think of this as character irony, and it's a term I'm making up again. These are not terms you missed in, in 11th grade English. I'm making all this stuff up. Um, but 1984 by George Orwell um, ends on this note. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. And of course, that's the exact thing, that you know, you know the, the, the worst possible thing. Um, he might be lying to himself. He might be sincere, you know, Million ways to read that, but um, we're addressing meaning um, through the opposite of the message we were supposed to take away because we know better. (laughs) All right. So now, moving on to even more specifically to the words used, to the ways that writers might be playing with sound at the end of a story. And we talked yesterday about how in many cases we do want that retardando effect, that slowing down at the end of a story, whether through line breaks, through the rhythm, through simply maybe more words if they're, if they're warranted, if they're not just filler. Um, so that's one way that I, I didn't put that in here, although there are some examples of it coming, um, but just as a reminder, that is one way that we're dealing with sound at the end of the story, that we really need to be thinking like poets instead of like prose writers on the last page. So I talked yesterday about how the auditory, leaving us the auditory, we talked about you know, music at the end of a movie, at the end of a TV show, can be this very haunting echo in, in the way that the visual might not be. And dialogue is one of those things that for some reason can ring in our ears. I think there's something about when we read dialogue on the page, we hear it more than we hear the narration. Maybe we've come up with a little voice in our minds for that character. We kind of know what they sound like. There's something very haunting about ending with dialogue, especially when it's devastating, especially when it's very well done. Um, one of my favorite examples, because of the setup, partly, is Dennis Johnson, the short story Emergency from the collection Jesus Son. And the narrator, who's known as Fuckhead, if, if that's kind of all he's ever called, um, and he's the narrator of all these stories, and his friend Georgie are both orderlies in a hospital. And they've been driving around, and a lot of really messed up stuff has happened. they just tried to um, save some rabbits and killed them. And um, He gives us this setup. Some hours before that, Georgie had said something that had suddenly and completely explained the difference between us. But then he doesn't tell us what it is. And he gives us like two pages of them picking up this hitchhiker and all this guy who wants to escape from the war, all this interesting stuff. Never tells us, totally leaves us in suspense. And then the very last sentence, after a while, Hardy asked Georgie, what do you do for a job? And Georgie said, I save lives. We've already been told the meaning of that, that that illustrated the difference between them, but we were told two pages back, and I think if he did it right there, it would have been too much if he said, and that showed me forever the difference between us. (laughs) Would have been a terrible ending. But leaving us just with those words, I save lives, which are also very ironic, um, speaking of the irony. Um, Some of my other favorite examples of that, um, if you've read Another Bullshit Night in Suck City by Nick Flynn, which is a memoir, he ends on dialogue in a way that I couldn't reproduce here because it wouldn't make much sense, but ends on dialogue in just an absolutely devastating way, something his father says to him. So I have lyricism here as a category, and they should all be lyrical to a certain extent. We've talked about that echo, that musicality. Um, But some writers can get away with being over-the-top lyrical, and it depends on the book. And I just want to give you this example. This is Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And I didn't realize until someone pointed it out to me that it actually rhymes. He actually starts rhyming, which makes sense. It's not something I recommend for everyone. It makes sense because he's been talking about jazz. And um, there's a lot of reason for this. Ah, I can hear you say. So it was all a build up to bore us with his buggy jiving. By the way, listen for the ooh sounds as I read. He only wanted us to listen to him rave, but only partly true. Being invisible and without substance, a disembodied voice, as it were, what else could I do? What else but try to tell you what was really happening when your eyes were looking through? And it is this which frightens me. Who knows but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. Did you hear it? I mean, right? And, and you wouldn't. I was punching it a little. You don't want to sound like Dr. Seuss. And, and probably you're not going to rhyme at your ending. That's not something I'm recommending you go out of here and do. But as an example of what can be done, over-the-top lyrical, right? It's a song. He's, he's leaving us with a song. Um, repetition is another way to play with sound at the end, and there's something about that. Maybe it's the musicality of it. A repeated musical phrase can also indicate the end of a song, right? The repetition can show us that things are wrapping up for some reason. That's what it means to us. I don't know why. Um, here's William Faulkner. I don't hate it, he thought, panting in the cold air, the iron New England dark. I don't, I don't, I don't hate it, I don't hate it. Um, Think of the end of Ulysses, yes, she said, yes, I will, yes, right? Um, And it might be something that was just repeated from earlier. I also have echo, which is very similar to that, but this would be an echo of something far earlier in the book, something we've already seen or heard, but we're looking back to that. the end of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which is probably my favorite book of all time. If you've never read it, you have to. Um, it re- The last paragraph is almost exactly the same as the first paragraph, with a couple of words different. And this, this is what they are. It's not going to mean a lot to you if you haven't seen the beginning and heard the end. But Hill House itself, not sane, stood against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. And that's where that Repetition makes sense. She's she's talking about the ongoing nature of this house. Within its walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House and whatever walked there walked alone. It's a really creepy, creepy book. Um, I have a note here. I personally can't stand it when a book or a story ends with the words of the title. I think that's the cheesiest way to beat the gong. But you know Thomas Pynchon does it in The Crying of Lot 49. Um, Michael Chabon sort of does it with Cavalier and Clay. You kind of get away, just a personal thing, I don't know. I, I'd be curious to take a poll sometime and see how other people feel about that. Um, so another way we can play with that sound is allusion or quotation. So leaving us not with a dialogue of a character, but a quotation of something else. Maybe it's leaving us with song lyrics. Maybe it's leaving us with, um, well, I'll, here's an example. So Alice Munro, um, f- probably my favorite story of hers, or at least tied for first. Hateship, friendship, courtship, loveship, marriage. Um, a girl has been doing her Latin translation homework, and her mother has told her something, basically, that... These two people, she kind of this girl tricked into falling in love, or she was trying to play a trick on them. They ended up falling in love and having a baby, and she's just learned that she's responsible for this, basically. Ignoring her mother, she wrote, You must not ask. It is forbidden for us to know. She paused, chewing her pencil, then finished off with a chill of satisfaction. What fate has in store for me or for you? So, you know, we've learned earlier what it was that she was translating. This is a real quotation. It doesn't have to be familiar even to us for it to have that ring of the familiar. Um, we could also end with a question. And there's something about ending with a question, that note left hanging in the air, that's, that's especially haunting. We just saw it with Ralph Ellison. Um, who knows but that on the lower frequencies I speak for you. Um, it could be sincere, it could be ironic, it could be sarcastic, it could be philosophical. It sort of demands an answer, right, from us. Um, Lori Moore, this is, I mean, one of the most famous short story endings of recent time. It's a, it's a story about writing very true to life about her experience in the cancer ward with her son's leukemia and talking about how at least she can write this down and sell the story. These are the notes. Now where is the money? And, I mean, she's asking that of us, I think, which is... One of the things that just makes me get goosebumps and almost cry when I talk about it. So you know, it's it's a oof. She's putting it on our lap, right? It's it, that story is not self-contained. She's turning it outwards to us now, um, in a really chilling way. So one more. I, I also have a note here. Dr. Seuss is the Cat in the Hat. Remember, if you've read that, to your, what would you do if your mother asked you? And my kids always answer that like, I wouldn't tell. <laughs> Great. You wanna tell if a stranger comes in the house, and thanks. <laughs> freak me out. Um, Okay, so apostrophe which is kind of the poetic term for direct address. So an ending where it's directly addressing either a character or maybe the reader. Um, I gave an example from Iris Murdoch yesterday where she said, you're you're gonna want to know how I know all this stuff. She's talking to us. Here's an example, um, Charles Dickens, where characters talking to someone within the book. Oh, Agnes, oh, my soul, so may thy face be by me when I close my life indeed. So may I, when realities are melting from me like shadows, which I now dismiss, still find thee near me pointing upward. Probably don't want to end on quite that same <laughs> level of, of high-flown rhetoric in this day and age, but um, another example, John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, um, which it, it's she's talking to her boyfriend who's dead, and it's, it's something like I will, Augustus, I will, or I do, Augustus, I do, and, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, okay. Okay. So, and I think you could probably, as I've said, hopefully you will find more and more and more sort of identifiers and categories and ways that writers are playing with sound at the end, ways that they're playing with what's going to echo in our ears. Um, And I think you could probably get much more specific and poetic and get into things like consonants and assonance, things like, you know, all that stuff you might have learned in a poetry workshop at some point in your life. All right. So... I want to talk about endings that play with scope or focus, zooming in or zooming out. And the reason that this works particularly well for an ending is that destabilization, shifting from what has come before, is one of the ways, first of all, that we can really indicate things are changing now, things are different now, we're moving on, the story is done. It feels like an ending. But it can also be where we find some of the meaning. We're, our vision, our attention is directed at a thing or outward, right? So basically, there, you know, we could zoom in. There's the sort of sensory pinpoint. We could end on an object. We could end on. I was giving this this um, talk once, and someone said, "Oh yeah, the series Friends ended with just the camera focused on their keys left on the counter," and I I can't really, I took their word for it, but I've given that as an example. Um, It could be an object. I have Graham Swift in Waterland. On the bank, in the thickening dusk, in the -the will-o'-the-wisp dusk, abandoned but vigilant, a motorcycle. Also notice the repetition in there of dusk, right? Um, It could be a sound, some other sensory focus. Edward P. Jones ends the first day with um, her shoe. The the narrator's mother has dropped her off at school, and he hears her shoes. Her shoes make loud sounds in the hall, etc., etc. I can still hear my mother's footsteps above it all. So giving us just this one thing, we've been seeing this world, and now we're in on a sound, we're in on a motorcycle, we're in on the shoes, and that's where it leaves us. So it, it has to be well chosen. This can't be random. The mother's shoes are not random in this case. It's the sound of the mother, of her authority, of her protection, leaving but still there. There's a reason for him to choose that image. We could also zoom out. We could have been focused on a very specific group of people and suddenly we're way back here. I always think of the end of a Woody Allen movie. He lets the characters kind of walk away. He pulls back. There's jazz music. He's showing the whole city, right? Um, James Joyce's The Dead ends with, you know, yes, the newspapers were right, snow was general all over Ireland. Or was supposed to be overall Ireland. Did I mistype that? Hmm. Um, and we get in back down into the specifics of Michael Fury, this guy who's dead. Um, his soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe and faintly falling like the descent of their last end upon all the living and the dead. Instead of getting his wife, this party, this guy, we're getting, first of all, all of Ireland. Now we're getting the whole universe and all the living and the dead. It's giving us a sense of the space, what the story means within the universe. It's giving us a sense of how small they are. It's doing a million different things. and I also have another example here that I'm not going to read, but Colin McCann in Let the Great World Spin, I found this cool example. He's zooming rapidly in and out. He's going in and focusing on uh, the clock hand, uh, an apricot, but then he zooms out, the world spins, we stumble on, it is enough, and then back in the clock, the fan, the breeze, the world is spinning. And it's very destabilizing. Um, It's very appropriate to the book, also. Okay, so in a similar way that the change in scope in what we're allowed to look at can signal the end and can provide us our meaning, a shift in time can do the same thing. Something we were talking about about Alice Monroe, if you were here earlier, and it's something that I think applies to every ending. Every ending exists in relationship to time, in some way or another. And we're especially thinking about time subconsciously when we reach the end of a story. The end of every story is a death. And every the ending of every story is about time in the same way that every death is about time. We're leaving things behind. We're moving on. We're thinking about what's next. We're leaving all these people in the past. They are dead to us now. So we're always, in some way, either dealing, our attention is focused at the end of every story, on the past or the present or the future or some strange combination of those three which we'll get to. So if we think about endings that stay in the present moment, what keeps us in the present moment, it might be a continuing action. So things have been moving along at a normal speed, we've taken our meaning from the story But they're still moving along at a current speed. We see something happening in the moment. So, this is the end of Jennifer Egan's The Keep. As I walk to the edge of the pool, I'm filled with an old childish excitement. I wait, letting the snow fall and melt on my hair and face and feet. I let the excitement build until it floods my chest. I close my eyes and dive in. Um, It's very, you know, it might be looking to the future slightly. It's also, because of what this pool means to this woman it has to do with the past but it's very much a present an action in the present moment we are right there with her right at that time um some endings we've already talked about the reflective ending where the the narrator is thinking possibly in that moment that could keep us in the present the sensory pinpoint that motorcycle on the bank right the sound of the shoes that keeps us in that present moment so there are many ways to stay there in the present and here's a weird way to stay in the present this is a kind of a high-level trickery thing. The freeze frame. I've only seen this done a few times, but it's really cool. The narrative freezes in time. It's not that we're in the present, it's that like a photograph, like a movie going out on a still photograph. And we saw the example I gave you of Villette yesterday um, with, um, she refuses to tell us that her husband died at sea. And here's the end of The Ice Storm by Rick Moody. Or that's how I remember it anyway. Me, Paul, the gab, that's what I remember. And this story really ends right at that spot. I have to leave Benjamin there with that news, with a wish for reconciliation that he will bury in himself. I have to leave Elena, my mom, whom I have never really understood. I have to leave Wendy, uncertain, with one arm around the dog. And I have to leave myself, Paul, on the cusp of my adulthood, at the end of that honest mirabilis, where comic books were indistinguishable from the truth, at the beginning of my confessions. I have to leave him and his family there because after all this time, after 20 years, it's time I left. And then it says Phineas at the end. Um, so for whatever reason, and I think it's been done also to indicate death, as I showed you in Villette, um, um, Virgil's Aeneid, of all things, has this really strange example where there's, they're looking at this sort of, or they're, it's describing um, a, a sort of, Carved freeze is that the right word of these heroes caught mid action in battle, um, and and you know has to be appropriate to what you're doing. But um, a, a cool you know a cool thing to use once in a while. If all end, if all stories ended that way, I think we get really tired of it. But it's a, it's a nice trick to have up your sleeve. Okay, we could though be looking back to the past at the end. We talked about the sort of elegiac ending, which would also fit in this category. Um, the technical term for a flashback in fiction is analepsis, so I have put it here just so that you can pull out a, a funky word once in a while. We talk, call it a flashback. Um, we might be flashing back to an earlier point in the storyline. It might be something we've already seen. It might be something that we knew about but haven't seen. It might be something we never knew about. This might be news to us. Um, suddenly we learn what's been making this character tick all along, or we learn the secret. But we've been going along on this timeline, and now we're going back, and we're ending somewhere in the past. Right? Um, I have an example here from Dan Sean's You Remind Me of Me, which is someone, at the end, we're just suddenly back where this woman is giving birth to one of the main characters. Um, Since it's a story about adoption and things like that, this makes total sense. Um, I'm not going to read that one to you, um, I'll read you in the next one. This is a, a, a way that analepsis can be used, I think, to sort of devastating and beautiful effect. When we know already that the story ends very unhappily, instead of leaving us there, the author takes us back in the timeline and ends on a note of hope before the disaster, which is... Um, a way to sort of leave us, you know, it gives us a happy ending without giving us a happy ending. Someone asked me about happy endings yesterday. This is a really strange way to do one. Um uh, Milan is the unbearable lightness of being. Um, Tomás and Teresa, these characters, we've seen them die in an accident. And they've been dead for quite a while. And then suddenly, the last, actually, few chapters were back when they're alive. And it's a very dreamlike kind of narration, back when they were happy. And we end with the scene, they're, they've been dancing Then they all went upstairs into their two separate rooms. Tomás turned the key and switched on the ceiling light. Teresa saw two beds pushed together, one of them flanked by a bedside table and lamp. Up out of the lampshade, startled by the overhead light, flew a large nocturnal butterfly that began circling the room. The strains of the piano and violin rose up weakly from below. If it weren't for the position of this scene in the timeline, it would be kind of a dull ending. They went upstairs, they went to bed, they were happy, butterfly. Instead, it's absolutely devastating. We're we're being shown their happiness when we know that that's not the case anymore. So another way that we can be using the past at the end is um, the summation, the time when the narrator or character kind of summarizes everything that's happened. Um, This needs to be done with restraint. It could come off as very sentimental. It could come off as awfully cheesy. Um, But this is Nicole Krause's The History of Love. Really, there isn't much to say. He was a great writer. He fell in love. It was his life. And it's her understatement there, of course, that makes that work. Um, If she'd been ending with, he was a great man, and we're going to miss him, (laughs) uh, it wouldn't work quite so well. Um, Okay, So there are ways that an ending can look forward to the future. And in fact, a lot of endings do. We could have the open ending, which we talked about yesterday, where the future might be unknown, But our attention has been directed there because it's a question, because we're left wondering. We could, now this is the opposite of analepsis, prolepsis, which means we're really moving forward in time, sort of like the many years past and then. Um, And I think someone said that yesterday that this is something they don't like. Um, It can definitely be overdone. I always think of the ending of Animal House when there's the parade going by and it tells you on the screen what happened to every single character. And there are certain books where you get to the end and you're going, oh my gosh. Um, I actually think, I've given an example here of Jess Walter's Beautiful Ruins. I actually think he overdoes it. Nobody tell him I said that, but I think he really overdoes it at the end. He gives us too much about too many characters. Um, But this is Michael Chabon's Wonder Boys. I do my writing in the morning now if the boy will let me. He goes on to talk. He's talking about himself suddenly in the third person, which is odd, but that shift, again, indicating closure, Um, saying he sits around in this tavern. The young men listen dutifully for the most part, and from time to time, some of them even take the trouble to go over to the college library and dig up one or another of his novels and crouch there among the stacks, flipping impatiently through the pages, looking for the parts that sound true. So we're in we're using the present tense, we are in the future with him or rather this whole story has been the past and now we're all caught up with him. Um, This could even be done in the past tense, many years past and then five years later she walked along the street and saw this. Um, But um, it really needs to be done as an essential part of the story, not as a way for the author to give everyone a happy ending or to give everyone what they deserve or to tie up every single loose thread there needs to be a reason for the moment we jump to, beyond, let me satisfy everybody. Um, and in fact, this you know, this ending is rather sad that Michael Shaphan gives us. Um, so predictive ending, we, where we're not in the future yet, but the author, or the narrator, is very sure of what's going to come next, or the narrative voice, and starts using the future tense. Now, I will not read Jill McCorkle to Jill McCorkle in a Chicago accent, so I'm not going to read this out loud. But... Um, this is Joe's story, Intervention, um, which is about an intervention. And at the end, we basically, you know, are it, it, this is sort of an acknowledgment of what's going to happen, that they're going to continue in this way. Um, things are not really going to change, but they're in love, and this is how things are going to go on. And that last line, she will fasten her seatbelt and not say a word. She's going to get in the car when her husband's been drinking. This is going to happen. and. The fact that it's using the future tense means we're still in that present moment, but everything's been decided already. right? We, the, this is the point, the Rubicon has been crossed, the future is known, and that's why we stay there and look forward. It would have lost a lot of steam to jump forward five years, right? and say five years later, there she was getting in the car with her husband. Um, it's more what it means for this moment. We're seeing, we talked yesterday about the rock and the pond, seeing the ripples, the story has been the rock in the pond. These are the ripples, right? Okay. Um, it could also be sort of, an, you could also give an ironic predictive ending. The narrator or the narrative voice could think they know what's going to happen and be totally deluded, um, which is how I read the ending of Raymond Carver's "Fat." Although certainly you might disagree, but I think he's full of it here. I feel depressed, but I won't go into it with her. I've told her already told her too much. She sits there waiting, her dainty fingers poking her hair, waiting for what I'd like to know. It is August. My life is going to change. I feel it." Personally, my reading is, no, your life is not going to change. (laughs) Um, I want to point out here, though, um, in addition to what we're talking about right now, the line breaks that he's using. If he had done that all as one paragraph, waiting for what I'd like to know, it is August. My life is going to change. I feel it. It's nothing. Those line breaks make it. He's writing poetry. He's not writing prose. Um, We could also, this is very closely related, and again, looking to the future, Um, It could have the decision or the resolution. This is where we have a first-person narrator, maybe a close-over-the-shoulder third-person perspective saying, tomorrow I'm going to do this. So we have Huck Finn, very famously. I reckon I got to light out for the territory ahead of the rest because Aunt Sally, she's going to adopt me and civilize me, and I can't stand it. I've been there before. We don't know if it's going to come true or not, but our attention is directed from out of this moment and into the future. We are invited to imagine Huck Finn's next five years. And we, we have a pretty good sense of what those would be based on what, you know, we just know they're going to be crazy. He's going to go off and have crazy adventures, right? And that shift from the present to the future is what signals that this is over. Um, and just like the predictive ending could be ironic, the sort of decision resolution ending could be ironic or doomed. Um, we have um, Kazuo Ishiguro in The Remains of the Day, this butler, um, who's just painfully shy and awkward and um, deciding that he's going to learn how to banter with his. And this is going to make everything okay when his boss has been caught up in all this like espionage I have of course already devoted much time to developing my bantering skills But it is possible. I have never previously approached the task with the commitment. I might have done Perhaps then when I return to Darlington Hall, I will begin practicing with renewed effort I should hope then that by the time of my employers return I shall be in a position to pleasantly surprise him so deeply ironic but looking toward the future, and you can start to see how char- narrators, er, authors, sorry, characters, narrators, authors are doing multiple things, using multiple relations to um, these different devices to, to give us our meaning and to, co- to signal finality. But these are my favorite ones here. Okay, when we combine time settings in a really fascinating way. So I call this one the crystal ball. I'm sure there's some really technical term for it, but we're going along in the present or in the present of the story, we zip forward to a moment in the future, but then we come back to the present. We don't stay in the future. And this is a particularly devastating example. Edgar Carrot is an um, Israeli writer, so this is in translation. Um, I don't think you need any context here. I look at the sweaty guy in the coat. It's the first time in my life I see a suicide bomber. Afterward, in the hospital, foreign journalists will ask me to describe him, and I'll say I don't remember, because I'll think it's something kind of personal, something I should keep between me and him. Joseph will survive the blast too, but not so the waitress. Not that there's any culpability on her part. In terrorist attacks, character is not a factor. In the end, it's all a matter of angle and distance. That guy who just came in is definitely running away from something, Joseph says, and laughs, rummaging around in his pockets for some change for the tip. Maybe he'll agree to write the screenplay for me, or at least meet for coffee. Our waitress, laminated menu in hand, dances her way over to the sweaty guy in the coat." Whew, right? Oh my god. So now, one thing I want you to notice here is the lack of paragraph breaks. He did not break this up, and I think if he did, it would have made things too distinct. The way it all runs together, the way we don't even know we're back in the present until we kind of finish that line of dialogue. Um, is the point here. The point is the muddledness of it all, and the way that fate, the, 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 the present and the future are inextricably intertwined in this one moment. Okay. Um, so there's also something um, that I think of as a telescopic ending that Alice Monroe is a master of, where what we're doing here now is we're, we're going ahead to the future in order to look back on the present moment. So we, we go to the future, we stay in the future, and we look back. So kind of a heavy-handed way to do this would be to say, you know, 40 years later, he would look back on this day and realize it was the moment that everything changed for him, right? Okay, Alice Munro is going to do it much, much better than that. So check this out. Post and Beam. This is the, the ending of this story taught me how to write, and I don't know how to explain it any other way, but it opened a window in my brain when I read this story. I was probably 25 years old. And I've, I'm still trying to unpack what she did here, but it, it taught me more than any um, graduate course I ever took, and more than any craft class. So it's been a long, in-the-moment story. It's about this post in Beam House, it's about this marriage, and it's kind of, she's coming to terms with the fact that this marriage isn't perfect. And this comes out of nowhere at the end. It was a long time ago that this happened in North Vancouver when they lived in the Post and Beam house when she was 24 years old and new to bargaining. Now, it doesn't tell us anything about the future. We suddenly have a future perspective looking back at the present moment. And in that phrase, when she was new to bargaining, we know everything we need to know about the future of this marriage. And, you know, it's light as air. It just comes and... and whisks us away, right? Um, and I get, oh, I still get goosebumps every single time I do that. Um, Alice in Wonderland of all things ends in, in a, with a similar technique. Alice in Wonderland does not give me goosebumps. Um, okay, one more kind that I'm going to show you and then I'll, I want to talk you through one more thing here. Um, I put this with time because I don't know where else I would put it. The speculative ending, the ending that imagines what might have been but was not. So but you could put it in time. You could also say it's a kind of irony. Maybe it goes under ironic endings. Um, but this is from Jonathan Safran Foer's *Everything Is Illuminated*, and he's been, this boy has been dealing with how his father died in 9/11. He discovers that if he flips backwards through these photographs, it looks like this man is is actually fl- flying up into the building. And the book actually ends with those pictures in reverse. But before that, these are the last words. He's imagining basically if they could have lived that day in reverse forever. I'd have said dad backward, which would have sounded the same as dad forward. He would have told me the story of the sixth burrow from the voice in the can at the end to the beginning, from I love you to once upon a time, we would have been safe. So, whew. Um, you know, And it's, it's so much more heartbreaking than ending on what did happen, right? It's, it's uh, that distance. The distance between what is said and what happened is where the meaning is there. Um, So, as I've said, you know, a brilliant author will be doing many of these things at the same time, and in new and strange combinations. And so, for that reason, the last thing I have here is Jennifer Egan again. This is from A Visit from the Goon Squad. It's not the ending of the whole book. It's the ending of the story, Safari. It is a novel in stories. And Safari was published on its own. I think I'm still choked up from Jonathan Safran, sorry. Um, It, um, you know, I I consider it an ending. It is in many ways an ending. But I I think we have time. I'm going to read this to you. And you don't need to know everything that happened here. I'll tell you a little bit. But um, what I want you to look for, it is elegiac. It's looking back. There's a glimpse of the future. There's also telescoping back to the present from the future. There's an extrinsic end, the kind of structure we hang a story on because this is the last night of a safari. The safari is coming to an end, so the story is coming to an end. The story was called Safari, right? There's a revelation. There's some very devastating dialogue that we end on. It is lyrical. There are sensory pinpoints. There are little things we focus on. Um, I would argue that. To a certain extent, they're a game changers, which we talked about yesterday. So Charlie and Rolf, are brother and sister, um, a lot of really weird things have happened on this safari. Um, Interpersonal, and someone got attacked by a lion, I think. Um, And they've been on this with their father and his girlfriend. Um, Charlie's the girl. Look, Charlie, tells Rolf over the music. The bird watchers are watching us. Mildred and Fiona are sitting on chairs beside the dance floor, waving at Rolf and Charlie in their long print dresses. It's the first time the children have seen them without binoculars. I guess they're too old to dance, Ralph says. Or maybe we remind them of birds, Charlie says. Or maybe when there are no birds, they watch people, Ralph says. Ralph says. She takes hold of his hands. As they move together, Ralph feels his self-consciousness miraculously fade, as if he is growing up right there on the dance floor, becoming a boy who dances with, a, with girls like his sister. Charlie feels this, too. In fact, this particular memory is one she'll return to again and again for the rest of her life, long after Rolf has shot himself in the head in her father's house at 28. Her brother as a boy, hair slicked flat, eyes sparkling, shyly learning to dance, But the woman who remembers won't be Charlie. After Ralph dies, she'll revert to her real name, Charlene, unlatching herself forever from the girl who danced with her brother in Africa. Charlene will cut her hair short and go to law school. When she gives birth to a son, she'll want to name him Ralph, but her parents will still be too shattered. So she'll call him that privately, just in her mind, and years later, she'll stand with her mother among a crowd of cheering parents beside a field, watching him play, a dreamy look on his face as he glances at the sky. Charlie, Rolf says, guess what I just figured out. Charlie leans toward her brother who is grinning with his news. He cups both hands into her hair to be heard above the thudding beat. His warm, sweet breath fills her ear. I don't think those ladies were ever watching birds, Rolf says. Okay. So first of all, if you haven't read this story, read this story. It's amazing. And I hope I didn't just spoil it for you. I don't think I did. Um, I've spoiled many things for you, but not that story. Um, So Look at all the things she's doing, and I think you could think of a million more, things that don't even have anything to do with endings. You could talk about her dialogue, her characterization, her rhythms, all of those things. But this... You know, she has this toolkit, and probably a lot of it is subconscious. And it should be pretty subconscious for you, too. So one thing, I, you know, I don't want you, anyone, to go home and, like, keep this handout on their desk, and then when you're ending a story, be like, whoa, okay, which ending am I going to choose? Um, it's something to absorb. And, I, you know, what I, what I wish for you and what I've wished for myself is that by becoming a very analytical reader of endings... By noticing, not just closing the book and falling asleep, um, not just passing judgment on the whole book, but when you get, you know, reread every ending when you get there, reread that last page, think about what's really being send- said there. It, it should be where most of the meaning of the story lies. think. Ask yourself, is this a closed ending or an open ending? And to what extent? Ask yourself, are we in the past, the present, or the future, or some weird combination of those? Ask yourself what's being done with sound. Ask yourself how that ending relates to the structure of the whole. Ask yourself if meaning is being addressed, and if so, is it directly or is it indirectly? And you'll start to find things that I have not found, things that Are going to speak to your writing more than I can. Um, But by noticing and paying attention, what that means, those are going to soak into you the same way that lessons about character have soaked into you, the same way that lessons about plot have soaked into you. And make sure then that those are available to you. I do, you know, when I get to the ending and I'm stuck, I do have these questions I ask myself about. You know, am I stuck because I'm stuck in the present moment? And do I maybe need to move to the future, to the past? Am I stuck because um, I'm not addressing meaning? And I could just come out and, and address meaning. Could I do an Amy Hempel ending with the bags on the field hockey field? Could I come out of absolutely nowhere and say something that does not seem to relate to this story, but that does? And is the reason that I'm stuck because I've been looking within the story for the solution, and the solution is outside of the story? So you know, to whatever extent you're comfortable with, it can be conscious. But the idea is hopefully that these become a part of the way you think and that all the things you find become a part of the way you think. Um, Please let me know when you discover other things that I've left out of this handout because every single time I give this craft talk, the handout grows by like two pages as I find new things or better examples. Um, Or if you find better examples, please let me know. So we have just maybe three minutes um, when we could do questions, um, and we had some yesterday, I know, so maybe some people kind of got them answered already, but I hope that um, some new ones have been raised, or maybe just um, something that you struggle with, with endings. Yeah? Uh, I don't have a question, but I do have an ending I'd like to share. Okay. Oh wow. Okay. in the hands of a maybe a different writer. Yeah. And that so when I was looking at these endings I've been trying to figure out where it like Yeah. I offer that. I love it. Stop, stop with me for like, if you find it please email me and let me know. I would say that you know it might you could say maybe it goes along with that idea of a question ending. It would certainly be an open ending, right? So um it would be an ending that I would assume might relate to the future, if it depends if he's asking about the future, right, so, so there, it, it exists in relation to maybe several different, um, categories of what he's doing, I love that idea, really cool, other, yes? Um, okay, a question, just an observation, but I noticed on the, um, in the, uh, ending of Edward P. Jones, the first day, um, was the right. Oh, does it? Yeah. I can't, I'm not gonna be able to find it again. Oh, away from it all, above it all. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, so maybe it's not just Ralph Ellison. (laughs) Try to get away with it, too. (laughs) Did you have one, Sarah? I did. I'm I'm going back to the very first line of your handout that talks about what we all know about rules. Can you think of any ending that is an obvious rule breaker but still works? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's that epic song that <laughs> has to do with the, you know,
1: don't. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it
0: comes on the radio now, 30 years later, and I'm yeah. still Yeah. Humming. Yeah. But that ending breaks so many rules and would be contrived in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I think there there are certainly ways that, if nothing else, that we can mess with the reader's expectations. Um, Alice Monroe certainly does that. I'm sorry, I have Alice Munro brain today for obvious reasons. But you know, we thought the story was about one thing; it's about something else, um, and she's taking us there. The ending of The Sopranos, which I mentioned yesterday, where you know we're expecting something, and it just the screen goes black. Um, it you know, people felt betrayed until they started thinking about it. And it, it broke kind of every rule out there. It wasn't an ending. It was an anti-ending. Um, I think there are ways that endings could break the rules of the story they're in, you know. Um, I mean, that Laurie Moore ending shatters the Right. And in, in doing that, it breaks so many rules. and was such a risky, risky ending. Yeah, um, yeah. right right yeah i mean i think i think you know we want you know you never want a story to end exactly where anyone might have thought it would end you always want to be breaking some rule, whatever you consider a rule. You always want to be shattering someone's expectations, confusing them in some way, making something new. Um, and you know, I think that's different. When I, you know, the rules I gave on the first page were the, you know, kind of the general ideas of what makes a story satisfactory, what makes an ending satisfactory. It honors the promises it has made to the reader. And maybe one of the ways that you're actually making an ending brilliant is by intentionally not doing that. Um, but it needs to be done intentionally, right? That's a, that's a decision you need to make um, consciously and for a reason that suits the story and for a reason that, um, you know, if it's some, in, in order to make things new and fresh and disturbing and beautiful and alarming and all those things that we wish a story to be. All right, thank you guys so much. I think we need to wrap it up. If anyone didn't get a handout, they're up there. And thank you all for listening so much and please email me with your other endings that you think of. This has been a presentation of the Kentucky Women Writers Conference and the University of Kentucky. We would like to thank LexArts, the Kentucky Foundation for Women, and the Carnegie Center for Literacy and Learning for supporting these endeavors. For more information, please visit KentuckyWomenWriters.org.